This is the uh, last sermon in this sermon series. Beginning next week, we're doing a, a three-week sermon series on the book of Haggai. Uh, you're probably thinking, is that in the Bible? It is. It's about this big. Um, and uh, it's, it's a really tremendous book, short little book, three chapters, that's it. Really excited to, to dive into that book with you guys. And after that is Christmas. Advent season begins. Can you believe it? So just four weeks from today, we'll be uh, all christmas out in this room doing Advent, which is pretty cool. So anyway, um, <clears throat> today uh, we are going to be looking at uh, the story of Elijah um, uh, pretty thoroughly here, but the overarching kind of focus today is going to be that of, um, of mental health. Uh, struggles with mental illness, mental disorders, and the like. Uh, a few statistics just to kind of start us here this morning. Um, this is from the uh, Mental Health in America, uh, MIANational.org, one of the kind of think tank, survey tanks out there that keeps track of mental health um, stats and data in our country. Um, even before COVID in 2019, one out of five American adults experienced mental illness. It was about 19.8%, I think. So basically one out of five. They experienced mental illness or mental or a mental health disorder. Right. 4.8, almost 5% of adults actually entertain serious thoughts of taking their own life. That's been increasing every year since 2011. Every year increasing. Among teens, 37 to 44% of teens report struggles with intense anxiety and depression since the COVID shutdowns. That number is insanely high. Uh, none of this is even including you know, data as it pertains to you know, uh, bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress syndrome, a host of other things that people do struggle with. Um, as a church, just want to clear a couple of things at the very beginning here. Um, it is not a sin to struggle with these things. It is not a sin to struggle with these things, to experience them in your life, right? You were you not dirty for having done so. Uh, nothing is wrong with you for having done so. Um, I don't know if I've ever explicitly heard Christian teaching that, that says that, right? But I think sometimes it can be implied you know, by the way, we, we uh, as simple as on Sunday morning, is like, how are you doing? You know, sometimes a lack of just kind of culture that we can have in just churches that we don't really respond honestly. We just, we've learned to get that, that smile on. It's like, I'm doing great, right? And we just do that. In reality, maybe you're not, or maybe there is some really serious stuff going on. But we just kind of learned, like, we, we just want to look like we're, we're happy because I guess happiness 24-7 all the time is associated with what it means to be a Christian, right? That's kind of the implied culture, at least that I grew up in, as I intended church. Um, and thank God for seasons when things go well. I mean, those are tremendous blessings. Um, but it's okay to say, you know, actually, in this time of life, I'm, I'm really not okay. And I'm not in sin for having not been okay right now. Right. I just want to clear that air. I want to talk about a couple of, just read you. Um, I had to delete some because it was actually uh, too long. Um, there is a list of, of people in Scripture who really struggled with seasons in their life. 
concerning their mental health. Uh, I'm going to just read a couple of these for you. Then we're going to look at Elijah's in depth here. Job, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, after experiencing all the loss that he did, the loss of his children, his wealth, his estate, his own health, and more, listen to how he describes what he's feeling, all right? I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaints. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Just let me know why you contend against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress me, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Verse 8, your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. That's in our scriptures here. Right. Psalm 77, the psalm writer Asaph, this is how he um, described it in his dark night of the soul, if you will, here. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, he will hear me. In the day of trouble, I will seek the Lord. And listen. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying, but my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God... I moan, like a, oh, when he remembers God, that's how he feels. When I meditate, when I pray, when I, you know, reach out to God, my spirit faints. Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, speaking to this church in the city of Corinth, we don't want you to be aware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's from the words of the Apostle Paul, despairing of life itself. And of course, Jesus here, Matthew 26, verses 36 to 38, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. This is the night before he's arrested, right? The night, uh, the, the hours before he's arrested, but before he faces the cross. After taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, listen to those words of our Lord and Savior here. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Verse 38, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Be my brothers here. Hang out with me. I'm so sorrowful. I feel like I could die right now. And Luke even describes him as saying that with literally sweats of, of you know, blood peering through his, his pores because of his intense pressure he was feeling in that moment. There are more that could, that could be mentioned, but in reading through these, I want you all to understand that at the beginning, it's really cheap and it's really shallow theology that teaches or implies anything like, well, if you were just a mature Christian, you know, you really wouldn't be struggling with something like depression or, or anxiety, right? Don't you have faith? Um, Paul, you know, we, he despaired of life itself. It, the pressure Jesus felt, we just heard these things. And to be frank, sure, you know, we all have ways we need to grow up and, and, you know, ways that we can emotionally mature. And perhaps there are times when we struggle because of a lack of some of our emotional maturity. That's always, you know, something to consider and um, be the case. But sometimes just being a human being means that we will go through hard seasons in life. Guaranteed, right? 
It will happen in this broken world, and such difficult things can occur that even the strongest among us will still find themselves breaking beneath the pressure. So no, today is not a TED Talk on the secret no one has told you about your struggles with mental health or something like that, right? That's not what today's sermon is going to be like. Um, We're going to be looking at the story of Elijah, looking at his own dark place and how God responded to him. Um, I hope this morning to give you a, a, just a reminder, okay, the, the word remember is a lot in scripture. I want you to get to remember who God is. I want you, to, I want to look deeply with you with his encounter with Elijah and equip you all with I, what I think is a rather neglected uh, reality of God's involvement in our day-to-day, hour-by-hour, even minute-by-minute lives. Something that Elijah needed to hear during his dark night of the soul, right? Really, in summary, what it means to have encounters with God in quiet, gentle experiences. We're going to talk about that. We're going to close our sermon today with uh, uh, our final guest of this series, uh, Nan Freeman. Um, she is a professional, professional counselor, Christian counselor, who works with Safe Harbor Christian Counseling. She actually has an office space inside of our facility. Uh, she's going to close us out today by equipping us all to kind of recognize signs of mental health struggles in us and in the ones we love, to equip us to see it, to recognize it, and to know in the, in the more professional kind of sense, what are some helpful ways to respond to that? Um, I, I asked her to come because uh, I had to learn a hard lesson after 12 years of pastoral ministry which is not, you know, a lifetime or anything, but there's something I've learned that um, certain things I don't have business interacting with or pretending like, you know, I should be speaking into. Um, I am not a trained counselor. I'm a trained pastor, right? Um, And there's a lot of things Scripture speaks into these issues, and I love praying with you, and I love speaking those things into your life. But there are certain things that can happen in our brains that I'm simply not equipped to speak into. And one of the prayers I had um, was just somehow to have accessible for you guys um, Christian counseling. So if I'm speaking with you, right, that I know there's a point to say, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'll still meet with you and pray with you, but I want to recommend that you, you see a professional to, to talk about this specific issue here and by God's grace, you know, she's not on staff or anything here, but, um, you know, she works for a different company. But she is here. She's accessible here in our building. And that's an extra prayer for, for me. So, um, yeah, you'll be hearing from her at the end of our sermon for a few minutes. Okay, so let's look at Elijah. Page 351 in your pew Bibles, the red Bibles. Um, as you're flipping there in the book of First Kings, chapter 19, is where we're going. Um, here's a little context as you're getting there. So Elijah was a prophet, okay? Prophets can be described as God's mouthpiece. What God has to say was being said through Elijah's own mouth. Uh, He was living at a time when the the kingdom of Israel was split in two. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and they were uh, stuck, completely stuck in worshiping false gods. All the pagan worship of the surrounding countries they had kind of embraced. They have rejected Yahweh God. And it was Elijah's kind of job to go and to try, with all of his might and strength, to reconcile them back to God, to the one true God. In chapter 18, you can read about it. It's a big famous showdown 
King Ahab kind of gathers these prophets to the false god. Elijah comes representing Yahweh, and there's this like battle of the gods almost between these two. You know, the, the, the prophets of Baal are dancing around with this altar built trying to get, you know, Baal to show up and, and catch fires, and nothing ever happens. And Elijah's kind of mocking them, making fun of them. And then Elijah gets buckets of water, dumps it on the altar. He prays, fire comes from heaven. This big, elaborate display of God's power occurs, right? And it's, it's like a high point, okay? If, if you're a prophet, now, no other prophet really had, had experienced something like this. Like, this is... This is the dramatic power of God as realized to the nth degree, okay? Um, you can't deny what happened, right? There were witnesses. People saw it. King Ahab was the one who kind of organized a lot of this. Um, and so if you're Elijah and this just happens, you know word is spreading. You know the king's going to hear what happened. You're probably thinking like, this is it. Like, God really showed up. This is going to be what it takes to turn the people back to God. Let's we'll see what happens. King Ahab tells his wife about the whole episode. And, you know, in reality, Jezebel is the one who's really running things. Ahab is kind of in her shadow in this time. So he tells her, 1 Kings 19 begins with this. Elijah's probably anticipating, now they're going to turn and come back to him and... You know, this is his, like life's pinnacle climatic moment. And here's Jezebel. Now Ahab told Jezebel, verse 1 through 2 here. He told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Because after the episode, the prophets were, they received capital punishment for their false God, their false worship. And Jezebel said, I want to make you like one of them. I'm after you. So how would you feel, right? You poured yourself out for God, gave him your all, gave him your best. He shows up, you're thinking, this is it. And still, their heart is hard. Still, the leadership wants to kill you of the country. Um... I don't know if you ever felt like things were simply going wrong even when you seem to be doing all the right things. Has that ever happened to you? Like you're just honestly doing the best you can in life and just everything's going wrong. This is kind of what's going on with Elijah, right? He's probably thinking, like, what's going on? I'm supposed to be a prophet. Isn't God going to cause this to, to work here to, like, turn these people? They're, they're still rejecting this? If this is the call of my life, maybe... It should be done with this. What else is there to do? Right? He hit that breaking point to say, like, I don't have, what do I have left? If that didn't work, if there's still, like, what is my life's call at this point? Like, I'm, I'm done. This is the downward trajectory in Elijah's story. Um, verse 3 says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Okay, nerd alert. Sorry. Can we have a nerdy moment for a minute? Nerd alert. Most translations say afraid. You might see a little footnote in your Bibles, depending on your translation, that says some manuscripts say he saw, or something like that. He saw Jezebel and ran for his life, something like that. Um, old, uh, newer, later manuscripts says afraid. The more reliable ones, which are a little fewer in number, say he saw. Why does this matter? 
Sometimes scribes throughout thousands of years of biblical history, they add little edits here or there. And so it's the job of a whole discipline called textual criticism to figure out what are those edits that don't belong to the original you know, manuscripts. Um, I think afraid was an edit that entered those latter manuscripts. Because I don't think Elijah was afraid. Why would he be, right? He just saw God show up in huge, big ways. And this matters to talk about because I think he just gave up. He kind of like threw his hands up. I was like, I have nothing else to, to do here. I've done everything. I've poured myself out to God. My life's work has not come to fruition. They're still after me. I'm done. I'm gone. I'm out. And he runs away. I mean, he runs because they are trying to kill him. So he's not going to stroll away. He runs away, right? He's done. The story continues. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. It's a sign that he's done with his ministry. I don't need you anymore. I'm done. I'm folding in. I'm throwing the towel in. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree. He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. He prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree, and he fell asleep. That's a pretty wild prayer. Lord, take my life. I'm done. My servants, he's, I left him behind. My ministry is coming to a close. But because my ministry was my life, because I don't know what else to do with my life, I'm done. Take me. I have no, when, I, when he sees the future, he sees nothing. He says, Lord, I want you to just go ahead and take my life. But even as he was struggling, he wasn't just traveling south aimlessly. We're going to see this. He wasn't just escaping with no destination, wandering in the desert. He was actually traveling somewhere specific. A mountain that was south of the desert uh, of Judah um, in the modern-day Sinai Peninsula. In Elijah's day, um, and also, yeah, in Elijah's day, it was, it was called the Mount of Horeb. In the days of Moses, it was more um, known as Mount Sinai. If you know some of the biblical story, that mountain rings a bell, right? This is the very mountain where Moses received the Ten Commandments. Elijah was on the way there. As he was in despair, as he was just struggling, he was on destination to get to this mountain. It was on that mountain that God chose Israel to be his people. It was there that his whole prophetic ministry found its source because he constantly was telling people, you know, the things that God said, the relationship that he established with his people, all that took place centuries prior on that mountain itself, right? The covenant that was, that was given to God's people that he knew Israel had broken, right? But as we saw after such miraculous, amazing events from God through Elijah, uh, still not softening the hearts of Israel's king, um, Elijah's really kind of heading back for almost like an origin story moment. You know, if you, you know, maybe see in movies, you know, people kind of go back to where it all began, you know, and, and go back to the basics of just where, where the first time it actually happened to try to rediscover and relearn things and revisit the very beginning. And, and Elijah's kind of going back there where it all began, right? Is, is God really rejected his people? Like, what, is he going to show up again? Like, is he going to affirm what's going on, that he's still present here? Because I'm not seeing anything here, right? 
His mightiest display still didn't turn their hearts. He's kind of going back to the beginning here. I want us to see the, the common thread that begins now in verse 5, the last half of verse 5, and also in verse 6. He's sleeping, right? He's taking a holy nap. We're going to talk about holy naps in a moment. He's just an emotionally exhausted man who just collapses underneath a broom tree and is sleeping. At once, an angel, a messenger from God, touched him and says, get up, eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. Holy nap number two. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. This journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank second time. Can we call it a holy snack, number two? Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Something very ordinary about this scene. Extremely ordinary. So ordinary that we might just you know, fly over it and not really listen to uh, what it's saying. This, this exhausted man, he collapses into a long nap. Not once, but twice. And he's given those two snacks as well. Sometimes naps can be holy. I do mean that. Sacred, almost. And I believe God can be present in our naps. Or just even a good night of sleep. Some of you here this morning may need a good nap this afternoon before the Lord. Sleep can be God's natural way of reminding us that we are not God. Because the things that keep us from taking naps and getting good night's sleep sometimes can be our own anxiety of waking up the next day to think, well, this XYZ is happening in my life and it's out of my control. So what are the 110,000 scenarios that I can potentially conjure up in my mind that can prepare me to fix everything the next morning. And before you know it, the morning comes, you're like, I didn't sleep, maybe like 20 minutes. That's not resting in the Lord in faith, right? To sleep takes some faith, especially when life is crazy like that. To say, I don't have control, but right now I need sleep. And I'm just going to do this for tonight. Right? Some of you need to learn how just to let go and just find sleep, right? And a really wonderful thing about the loving kind of touch here is that God didn't just kind of send his angel and just do that and food appeared. Do you pay attention to the coals are hot? There's bread being cooked, which means this angel cooked him a meal, right? Didn't just make it appear. There was a loving action of a meal cooked for this prophet. A small communication, almost like a hospitable act of God here. They say, I I didn't just make, I I took effort to bring you food here because I love you. Eat, right? Sometimes a good meal before the Lord is one of a reminder of he wants you to be sustained. He's provided you food and we can see that small little thing as we give thanks before meals and say, hey, he, he sustained me today with another meal. This is great, right? Just one little glimpse of of an ordinary way that God affirms, I'm with you. Here's a meal. I am with you. Okay, we're going to keep moving forward here. So as Elijah is strengthened 
with this from God, okay? A little sign that God is actually with him. He begins the journey another hundred miles or so south into the wilderness, into the desert where Mount Horeb, Sinai, where it's located, and he finally arrives. In verse 9, he gets there, he went into a cave, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I don't see this as a corrective word. I see it as a loving question from a loving father, right? You remember like as a kid when you were little or something, you were having, you know, I don't know, something happened and, and you were upset, you know, and your grandparent or father, you know, a loving, that loving person in your life kind of just sat down, just quietly sat down next to you and you're upset and you're aware they sat down and you're like, they're going to want to talk to me about whatever is going on. And I don't really want to do that right now. But you love them, and you know that they love you, so you sit there, and they just kind of say, what's going on? Right? You've probably had somebody do that with you, right? That, I think that's what God is doing with Elijah here. He travels all this way, and God's like, what's going on, man? What's going on, Elijah? Let's talk. Why are you here? Why are you here? Elijah then spills his heart out before God. Just a word to some of you men here. Um, it's not a sin to, to show emotion, right? Uh, us men can stink at that. Um, Elijah does that. Guarantee you that Elijah is tougher than you, um, speaking to the men in this room. And he shows emotion here, so it's okay to kind of like open up before God. And as we see Elijah doing here, um, verse 10, he replies, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They broke down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me as well. His despair is described. He says, I, I, I've been so zealous. I've given everything for you, God, right? They're still rejecting you, right? They're still rejecting the covenant given on this very mountain, kind of in between little thing from Elijah there on this very mountain the covenant he gave them they're they're rejecting it God all the altars are rejected and broken down all the prophets just like me are being killed right there's kind of like a little bit some complaints given there right because in the covenant it said that people who broke the covenant will be receiving the punishment and Elijah says I think I'm the one receiving the punishment right now God all the people like me that are trying to actually maintain our relationship with you are being hunted down and killed the ones who are rejecting you seem to be doing it from the top down and they're flourishing what's up what happened here in this mountain so many centuries ago God did you mean this covenant like this is kind of the in-between conversation happening between Elijah and God right and, and you remember where he's at in life. He's like, I'm, I'm done. I'd rather kind of die right now. And I'm just kind of curious, God, like, where are you in all of this? Right? This is what's going on. Now, here is when, you know, as good Westerners and Americans, it's tempting to want to look at the kind of psychologize all of this, if you want to say that, and start asking the why questions. Yeah, why would God allow all this? Why would God allow, you know, all these things to happen? And isn't he a good God? And, you know, and et cetera, and so forth. But in our story, that's not really the question asked. Um, it's not the answer given, as we're going to see. This is nothing but a broken prophet, and in similar fashion to Moses, even in a few instances, he's giving an official complaint before God against a rebellious people by which he himself wants to give up and quit doing what he's doing and simply die. Moses had a few moments like that as well. But here's what God does. 
here. He gives Elijah something really important. He, gets an Eli- he gives Elijah, Elijah an experience, an encounter with himself. He wants Elijah to have an encounter with the living God, with himself. Um, this is one of the more unique ones in all of Scripture, and I want to look closely at this. Beginning of verse 11, this is what God says to him. This is his response after that complaint. He says, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. That's his response. Go over there and stand. I'm coming your way. No answers, right? There wasn't like any response like, I'm coming your way, Elijah. Get ready. The last time God appeared on this mountain, you can go read about it, Exodus 19. Um, The mountain literally caught fire. Okay, smoke was pouring out of this mountain. It was shaking, it was quaking. The people on the ground were absolutely horrified and terrified. Thunder was, was, was booming, the black clouds swirled. It was dramatic, right? So maybe if you're Elijah, you might be thinking, uh-oh, if God comes over here now, like if that was like last time, am I gonna make this? <laughs> am I gonna survive this? Um, look at this, this is what happens in, in verse 11. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. These things were from God, obviously, but he wasn't in them. They did not contain his presence. Now, people did have dramatic encounters with God in Scripture, right? Um, The disciples once saw Jesus on top of a mountain transform, and his body started flashing like lightning. I mean, that's a pretty wild experience, right? Jacob dreamed of a ladder connecting God to heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending on it. Daniel had visions of the future. Like, these things do exist in Scripture, okay? These big dramatic encounters with God. Elijah just had his own just prior before this with the prophets of Baal. But what happens next, I think, is the most common encounter available to all of us. Okay, remember, Elijah's in his dark night of the soul here. He's in his dark place in life. And this is what God knew that he needed. It's what I think all of us need to, to pay attention to because it's the most accessible way that God interacts with us regularly, but I feel that we often, if not most of the time, miss it. Okay? Let's look at what happens next. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Some translations may say something like a small, tiny voice or a barely audible sound. You know, this only like, you know the sound of silence, right? When you're asleep and you hear that little bitty sound, you know, it takes something that quiet where if it was even noise happening, you would have missed it, right? Um, that's what he hears, something so quiet that's just barely audible. But then it was an Elijah knew, ah, there's God. He showed up. He showed up. It was then that he knew that God showed up. It took the three loud events to shake Elijah to his quietness. The best way I can describe as to why God did that is when my kids, like, are all, you know, like the other day for breakfast, I had Silas on the ground screaming because I put too many raisins in his oatmeal, and I had other kids, like, fighting over here, and just, you know, some of the chaos in the morning, other kids just screaming, I'm hungry, I'm about to die, you know, that kind of thing. And to kind of, like, calm it, you have to go, like, hey! And they kind of stop. And then you can communicate. 
I think that's what God did to Elijah here, right? Elijah was looking for something big, and God was kind of like, hey! And he, he kind of just, he saw this, and it stopped, and he's like, here I am. Are you listening? Are you too just caught up, you know, like dark nights and depression, these, these big feelings that can come on us in the seasons of life, they can be so extreme, like so heavy, that sometimes I think that when we're looking for God to respond, we're trying to find him in an equally, you know, intense, uh, heavy, uh, loud and dramatic way, kind of to, to match the feelings that we have inside of us. And sometimes that happens, right? Sometimes he gives us some dramatic experience of prayer or what may it be. But most often, I think he's whispering to us. And I think we're missing it because we're looking for the big stuff all the time. He's like, I'm right here. Are you listening? Are you listening? Right? Um, I want to remind you of just some, some truths that Christianity can claim here that, that no other religion can. You know what one of the names of Jesus was? This Christmas was around the corner a lot, uh, in Isaiah verse seven, uh, chapter 7. It's the name of our church, if you guys forgot. Um, Emmanuel. What does that name mean? God with us. God with us. There's no other religion, okay, that, that claims the closeness, right, that, that says God is this close. Most religions have him as this distant, mean, angry figure that's just waiting to kind of just flick you into oblivion the second that you do something wrong. We have a God, right, who showed us, who actually was incarnate, took on flesh and bones, a human nature just like ours, and actually suffered as we saw in the garden of Gethsemane, went through his own dark night. I mean, blood pouring, feeling sorrowful unto death. And even as, as he washed our sins away and rose from the dead and, the, and ascended back into heaven and the Spirit is now with us, he fulfilled that name that Isaiah spoke of, God with us. He is with us constantly, as some theologians say, he's even closer to us in our very skin. Do you know this, church? Do we, do we live in a quiet enough spirit to actually be listening to that small whisper? Um, th- there's various ways he does this. Quiet affirmations that I'm with you, right? In seasons when things are really hard, right? He's constantly telling you, I'm with you. Listen to this quiet way. The book of Ephesians talks about God affirming his presence in our life, in his small, quiet whispers. Listen to how ordinary this is, okay? This is a prayer from Paul. I've been reading this almost every day for weeks now. Um, Ephesians three eighteen through 19. Paul is praying for the church that they may be, have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I actually didn't cut off verse 17. Verse 17 speaks of that it is through the Spirit of God that this power is available. I pray that the Spirit will provide you with the ability to know how much God loves you. That feels really ordinary. God loves you. Yeah, that's one of the, the smallest little sticker for children, right? We give in Sunday school or whatever, but Paul says, no, I, I want the Spirit of God to remind you how much he loves you. What is the width and the height and the depth? because he's with you and his love is bigger than you'll ever know. You need to be reminded of that. 
This is a way, those quiet affirmations in our life. Yes, he loves me. The Spirit showed me this today. Right? It may not be a big event where there's the tears falling, you feel broken. Oh, you lost me. Maybe not. Probably not, right? On a Tuesday morning, you might be brushing your teeth to get running to work, and you're just you're feeling the anxiety of the day, and, and the Spirit's just like, I love you. You listening? I love you. And you're like, oh yeah, he is with me. Even though it may not feel you know, as intense as what I'm feeling right now, I know that he is with me. So here's four ways that I, I want to, uh, before Nan comes up here, um, four practical ways to listen to that whisper, okay? Because one of the most common things I get asked as a pastor is, I want to hear from God. I want to hear the voice of God. How do I hear from God? Here's four simple ways. Number one is through Scripture. This is inspired by God. It actually has his words. So if you feel dry and you're in that season of, of difficulty, right, um, uh, and you want to hear from God, well, the best thing you can do is just to open this, this guy up here and go to the Psalms and read. This is his word. Elijah didn't even have this, right? What we do. Um, spend time in Scripture, right? Um, uh, meditate on it. Pray for the Spirit to illuminate it and that he'll use these words to then speak to our hearts, those whispers. This is available to us. Take time daily for this. Number two, others through conversation with others, especially Christians, right? We can be reminded of and hear from God from others. His small whispers can come to us through the most mundane of conversations on a Sunday morning with a brother or a sister here. Number three is kind of subjective, but um, I think it's real. Uh, You ever had just that feeling in your gut after prayer or something that you're, you know, you just prayed for and maybe you're pushing away the feeling, but it's just kind of there? And you don't know how else to describe it. And you should feel, you felt you should listen to it. That's probably some of the whisperings here from God, right? It may not be writing in the sky. It may just be a feeling that he's like, listen, pay attention, right? Um, and four is just prayer and stillness, right? This Psalm um, of 48 says, you know, be still and know that I am God. Um, and finally, just be reminded of who he is, his sovereignty. His sovereignty in past, present, and future. Um, Elijah was told this right after this part in the scripture. Um, when Elijah repeats his complaint to God, God kind of tells him what's happening next. A reminder to say, Elijah, I am in control. Here's what's going to happen next. Um, Psalm 77, that talked about that when I think of God, I groan, okay? Um, it ends like this after he's complaining. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Do you remember the deeds of the Lord in your own life? Those are real. Remember that. I will remember the wonders of old. I will ponder your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way is holy, O God. It is holy. Psalm 77, verse 14 here. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among your peoples. Sometimes his own acts in your life or in those around you can be the very thing you need to remind yourself of in those dark places to say, I know he's real, even if right now I don't sense it and it's, it's not really in my periphery. I know that he has acted in my life before or I've heard stories of my friends or other people and I'm clinging to the hope of those stories as I take one more step this day. Um, this is just some, some, some biblical counsel here that I hope can equip you for this. Um, it is right now, I want to call up Nan to kind of give us some more 
um, you know, clinical professional kind of sets to equip us to, to recognize if we're falling into, you know, a, a, a mental illness or, or, or a mental disorder or just uh, uh, the lack of mental health in our own life, how to recognize it and some, some healthy steps to take um, from the professional side of things. So, Nan, could I um, have you come up? Welcome, Nan, everybody. I think this is working, yes. Okay, well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, Pastor Dan, for allowing me to come and for just a really wonderful homily, well, sermon. <laughs> um, I'm going to talk about um, what to look for if you are facing some distress. Now, we often bandy about words like um, mental illness, you know, psychiatric disorders. Um, I really like to put this more in layman's terms and call it um, distress and suffering. And the reason why is because when we have distress and suffering, it is not a sign of our weak-willedness or poor character or, or something shameful. We're having a normal reaction to abnormal events in our lives that are causing us to have symptoms that reflect our suffering, and that suffering is a signal to say something is not right that needs to be put back in order. And so I'm going to be talking, I'm, uh, make it as brief as I can, although I could go on forever. Um, what are some symptoms to look for? Um, you know, steps to take, and when to reach out to, um, you know, a healthcare professional. Um, and so, in terms of symptoms that somebody may be suffering from, whether it's you or somebody that you love, um, I'm, this is not exhaustive, but just some things to look for. First, just emotionally, that there's sadness, um, crying spells, there's worry or panic, there's just this kind of nebulous fear that something bad is going to happen, whether you can name it or not, but just something bad is going to happen. Um, then there can be some uh, physical symptoms as well. You know, racing heartbeat, uh, sweating, just GI distress, like my, my stomach is in knots. Um, you know, I'm just breaking into a cold sweat. I feel like I've got some knot in my throat and I can't swallow. So some very strong physical symptoms and, and they can be pretty severe. I mean, body aches. Um, and then some behavioral things, crying, isolating ourselves, um, just low self-esteem, insomnia, relationship conflicts, low motivation and low energy. We just don't feel like doing anything. Things we always used to enjoy, we just don't care about anymore. Um, and you know, some of the biggest, self-harm. So whether it starts with the thoughts of, I'm having thoughts of taking my life, of cutting, punching myself, risky behavior, I'm going to drive down an I-95 at 90 miles an hour with my eyes closed, or, you know, under the influence. So risky behaviors. These are definite, very clear signs of emotional distress. 
And there's a good reason why we had these emotions. I mean, God gave us our emotions as part of our body so that we can have signals to pay attention to that something's not okay and needs to be tended to. Okay, so if, you're, if you or anybody you know is having these symptoms and they're going on and on, and we, we say generally two weeks um, or, or longer without any kind of improvement, without any kind of let up, please pay attention to that. That's our body's way of saying something to us that needs to be taken care of. You know, in the same way, if a fire alarm went off in the building, we'd run. So these are signs and, and you know, the symptoms are our fire alarms going off saying there's something that needs to be paid attention to. Okay, so what, ha- what are the steps that we take to just, you know, these, si- these symptoms and those, the signals that are given off? Number one, pay attention to them. Avoid avoiding, avoid ignoring them, okay, because that's, You know, if we want to be attuned, whether it's to God's spirit or to our own bodies, we have to pay attention. So, you know, be honest with what you are feeling. I, you know, I I come from a, a Catholic tradition and I remember this priest saying one time, and it cracked me up, because he was from Staten Island, so he talked like Rocky, and on top of that he had a lisp, and he'd say, you gotta get honest with yourself. And, and that's what we need to do, is get honest with ourselves. I mean, he was right. Um, you know, let somebody know what's happening. And if your loved ones are saying to you that something's changed, whether it's with your behaviors, with your moods, pay attention to that. Listen to them because they're saying, they're noticing things that you or I may not want to hear or pay attention to, or we're just not even aware of. We may not even have the insight to recognize what other people are seeing in us. So please listen to them. Okay, now, um, finally, you know, when, when is it time to reach out to somebody who knows more about this? Um, a really objective and caring person. Um, when there's any talk of self-harm, or harm to another person. I want to hurt another person. What we call, you know, self-harm, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation. So whenever there's any talk of that, then you definitely want to reach out. We don't ignore these things. It doesn't mean that somebody's going to act on them, but if we can act quickly and get to the root of it, then it doesn't have to grow into something deeper, harder, you know, and I think we are all too aware of the mass shootings that have been happening. What would have happened if we had reached that individual much sooner, much earlier? Might that have prevented a massacre? We hope. Okay, Um, when your symptoms have gone on for months and even years, you know, do you really want to keep suffering? Okay. When symptoms interfere with our work performance, our relationships, or our daily life, you know, our ability to sleep, um, to you know, feed ourselves, our self-care. Um, and when we are waiting for somebody else to change, and they're not, 
come for yourself then. When you're hoping that your child will go to counseling and they refuse, come instead yourself. Okay. And when you're in any kind of danger, you know, one of my preferred populations is working with domestic violence. And my background has been you know, mostly with, uh, with women in domestic violence and they have been immigrants. Um, and so there's lots of danger that can come up in relationships to please um, reach out for help. Okay, and then there are two, two sayings that I, I'd love to share. These are kind of my, uh, my sayings. Um, and number one, it is, we cannot change other people, but we can change to the extent that others start to change because of our changes. So we can be the catalyst for change, even if the people we want to change are not. And other, the second one is, sometimes we would rather stay in a familiar misery than risk an unfamiliar happiness. Don't let that be you. And I'll tell you, counseling is hard. It is hard work. It is at times painful, but it is also freeing. And that is what it is meant to be, to free the fetters on our lives so that we can think better, behave better, and feel better. And oftentimes people want to feel better, and I will say, let's work on the thinking and the behaviors, because then the feelings will come. Okay, while God may not, per may, he may permit us to suffer, as we've heard very clearly in Pastor Dan's uh, sermon, you know, he does not will us to be miserable. Misery is optional. And while prayers and spirituality are an integral part of our healing process and our recovering from suffering, we cannot entirely pray our sadness away. And so God uses the natural world, which is his own creation, at times medication, um, and in community. It means one another, us, and the professionals in our lives doctors, counselors, psychologists, social workers, uh, case managers, so that we can overcome our challenges. So um, I just wanted to leave you with that. And um, I am available if anyone would like more information about counseling, um, or if there's a particular form of counseling that they're looking for, marriage counseling, family counseling. You know, I'd be happy to set you up with any resources. So I make myself available as well. But thank you so much for your time and for listening. All right, um, at this time, call the worship team forward. As we, uh, as we close, um, this is our, uh, what we call ministry time. Toward if anything you heard this morning uh, really impacted you, uh, we have people available up front here for prayer. So, um, yeah, as we're coming up, let me, let me start this time by prayer. Um, Lord, thank you that you, you love us. Thank you that you are with us. Lord, we, we live in an age of just abundant resources, and it's a, it, it, in many ways, it's a blessed time to be alive. And I just pray that your spirit would, if anyone in this room is just, you know, needs to take that step forward, um, to just receive prayer for these things, or even farther to prepare themselves to, you know, for counseling or things, Lord, that a healing could occur this morning in this room.
Yeah. For any that may have uh, uh, needs of physical healing this morning, we would love to pray for you as well. So please come forward. Um, so Lord, we, we just we give this time to you, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.